the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you with us for this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. 25th day, is that right? 25th day of, no, 24th. I'm rushing it? Yeah, okay, thank you. Nate's uh, <laughs> straightening me out here. You know, I, I make up days, times, weeks, months, seasons of the year as we go along. <laughs> Any event, you know the day, and I'm Craig Roberts, in case you didn't know that, here to say good afternoon, welcome, good to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline, keeping you company right up until 7 o'clock tonight, addressing important issues that impact your life and your world. Let's get down to cases, because we've got a lot to talk about tonight. Um, there of course, is a growing concern over the wildfires in Northern California and Oregon. The Caldor Fire so far has consumed more than 117,000 acres in just 10 days. Dixon Fire continues to uh, to be problematic. And, of course, uh, concern now as um, the fire that has jumped Highway 50 uh, potentially threatening Tahoe. We get the latest from Daniel Berlant, who was Cal Fire Public Information Officer. Daniel, first, thank you so much for all that you and your team is doing to uh, protect Californians. I understand a team of about 1,800 firefighters from across the state and other parts of the West helping out with this um, this growing mess. Give us an update, if you would, just kind of in terms of the order of, of concern from CAL FIRE's perspective as to where things stand at this hour. Well, the Caldor Fire uh, does continue to burn, actually. As of uh, today, we have now over 2,100 firefighters battling this fire. The big concern, while uh, it is threatening uh, thousands of homes and thousands have been evacuated, uh, the fire does continue to move closer and closer to the Tahoe Basin. We are working hard uh, with contingency plans uh, and lines to try to hold it back from entering in to the Tahoe region. Uh, but unfortunately, this fire has just been growing significantly with the drought conditions that we're experiencing, not only uh, where this fire is burning, but with the other dozen major fires that are all burning currently, uh, drought conditions really allowing for explosive growth on these fires. And we heard today that uh, the the air condition right now in Tahoe is one of the worst, not just in the nation, but across the globe, because of the concentration of where all that smoke has been has been heading. Uh, in terms of a sense of management and containment, I realize it in in some regards it's it's very premature to even suggest such a thing. But in terms of the Calder fire at this moment, a- any guess as to when firefighters are hoping maybe to get a handle on it? Well, right now, our best guesstimate would be that uh, by the uh, by about still another week or so that we'll uh, have this fire fully contained. Now, that is subject to change based on weather conditions. We do have it 9% contained uh, for many, many days. Uh, it was growing in all directions, and so containment was uh, was 0%. So we are slowly making some, some inroads and some holes where we're able to build that containment line, though there are several areas 
uh, not just into the north uh, easterly section of the fire that's continuing to burn towards Tahoe, but even down in the south portion of the fire, uh, it is doing uh, continued growth. Uh, but with the firefighters that we now have uh, on scene, they are working 24 hours a day uh, to try to get containment. But there, these are, this area is very steep. Uh, it's very difficult to access in some of those areas, and so that really allows the fire to burn and, and makes it our job of containing it that much more difficult. And I would suspect the, the efforts to fight by air, while having varying degrees of effectiveness, can be challenging if you're trying to bring aircraft into areas where there's heavy smoke and visibility being an issue, it suddenly becomes a significant safety factor. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the last several days, uh, we've actually uh, seen uh, the uh, inversions lift, and so the smoke lifts, uh, and that uh, allows for better clarity, uh, where the pilots are able to get in there, we're able to use our air tankers, our helicopters, but when that the smoke lifts, so does fire activity, and so the fire really picks up when that occurs as well, and so it's really... Uh, you know, is is not a good thing. Uh, the, the smoke inversions definitely help us at least moderate the fire behavior, but it makes fighting the fire from the air that much more difficult. Today, though, uh, we are using aircraft. We have a lot of air tankers, a lot of helicopters uh, working to drop fire retardant ahead of the fire, working to slow it down so that as it approaches areas where our firefighters are making a stand, they can do so. Uh, the other challenge in this fire is that there are over 17,000 homes and structures threatened by the fire. And so doing structure defense and protecting those homes uh, remains a priority, though we know uh, this fire, a very destructive fire. In the first couple of days, how quickly it burned out of the uh, off the forest and into, uh, into communities, uh, hundreds of homes uh, and other uh, structures destroyed by this fast-moving fire. And I know uh, those of us here in Northern California, particularly with memories of what happened in Paradise and Santa Rosa, really need to be mindful that uh, this is nothing to play with, and these fires can get out of control, as Daniel suggests, uh, quite quickly. The winds can shift. They create their own weather. And so certainly if uh, fire officials warn you uh, to get out, don't play with it. You should have your go bag with all the important documents and uh, some important possessions by the door ready to go at a moment's notice and do all you can to cooperate with the fire officials uh, because this is a a dangerous situation and uh, we've got a ways to go. I guess finally, Daniel, the big concern here is that in addition to the the difficultness of the terrain to be able to reach the fires and put them out and the the extreme uh, drought conditions that we've been suffering for an extended period of time here in California, coupled with that with the fact that officially fire season doesn't typically really begin until September and we've gotten a a three-month start on it. It's, uh, It's just a deadly combination. Yeah, absolutely. Historically, September and October, when we experienced our largest and our most damaging wildfires, I'll point back to the 90s of the Oakland Hills fire uh, that obviously just ravaged uh, a number of uh, neighborhoods throughout the Oakland Hills and, and Berkeley area. Uh, but this year, we have just been on this uh, this increase in the number of fires much earlier in the year. In fact, the amount of acres burned uh, is well above the average, uh, nearly double the amount of where it normally is. Uh, and so that's very concerning as we get into the, the more peak months. Now, your earlier comments were dead on. We need people to be prepared. Uh, the fires right now, especially under these drought conditions, are burning so quickly uh, that uh, everybody needs to evacuate when told to do so. We are seeing when evacuation orders are given, the roads get backed up, the traffic congestion occurs. And so when the evacuation warnings, uh, which usually are the first trigger as time allows, 
We really need people to leave the area quickly. Yeah, and that is the time to move, not the time to begin getting organized to move. Uh, you really need to, for the, for the sake of being able to allow firefighters to get in and better control the situation, along with for the safety of both firefighters and yourself, you need to listen to the instructions and uh, and move when asked to do so. Daniel Berlant, Cal Fire Public Information Officer. Daniel, we appreciate the hard work that you guys are doing, the huge risk of all the teams uh, to do your best to help and try to deal with these terrible fires. There's Daniel Berlant. All right, I want to pivot to another topic. Coming up tomorrow, Wednesday, in Sacramento will be the first ever, you may be surprised to hear this, but the first ever March for Life in the state capitol. We know that one of the largest, of course, in the country takes place annually here in the San Francisco Bay Area, in fact, in San Francisco. But this is the first time now that March for Life is coming to Sacramento to help make a stand and also make a statement. Joining me now is Jonathan Keller, president of the California Family Council. And uh, I'm sure that there's got to be a lot of anticipation tomorrow, uh, Jonathan, as folks from all over the state gather in our state capitol for this first ever March for Life. Well, absolutely, Craig. And as always, thanks so much for having me on with you and your listeners. I am actually in the Capitol right now. We've been doing preparation all day, meeting with the Capitol Police from the CHP. We've been working on the logistics, and we are just really thrilled to be having hundreds of pro-life advocates from across the state joining us on the south steps of the Capitol tomorrow for a 11 a.m. rally and then a noon march at the Capitol. And as you said, This is certainly not the only time we have had pro-life gatherings in the state of California. But the significance of this is that we are going to be in the legislator's backyard. We're going to engage in a peaceful and prayerful protest. We're going to be reminding them that all life is precious from conception to natural death. And that despite California being a very blue state, uh, we are not without a pro-life remnant. And I think it's so important that we show up that we raise our voices and that we remind legislators that they have to answer for the votes they take and the bills they pass and no more important area than that of the sanctity of human life. Now, let's uh, kind of peel back the curtain, if we can, for a moment and and allow, if if we're able to, Jonathan, listeners, to kind of get a a glimpse behind the scenes. Uh, It should be perhaps lost on no one. The timing of this march um, is very special. Of course, normally many of these marches take place across the country during January, during the Sanctity of Human Life Month, which marks the anniversary of the horrific uh, Doe v. Bolton and Roe v. Wade decisions. But this taking place a scant three weeks prior to the recall election. (laughs) I have to wonder if maybe there's also a little bit of a subtle message to legislators as they watch this unfold outside their, their windows in their backyard. Uh, that that maybe they need to pay a little bit more attention to the grander will of the people of California. Well, you know, it's funny. When we set the date for this march, we had no idea that the legislature would pass a law uh, ramming it through over the objections of uh, many conservatives and even just common sense that moved the election all the way up from November all the way to September 14th. And uh, like you said, Craig, we, we actually had no... Uh, no original plan that there would be any connection between this and the recall. And technically speaking, I should say, in case uh, our friends from the IRS are listening, uh, technically both our organization, California Family Council, and the March for Life organization are 501c3 organizations. So we do not officially endorse or oppose any candidates for office. But uh, if you do look at that from a providential perspective, uh, it is interesting to note 
that this is only going to be a short three weeks away from that recall election. And what I would just tell people, uh, being careful not to uh, not to transgress my tax exempt status, is that this is an important reminder that every single person, every single person who is inside that Capitol building, no matter what party they are, no matter what office they hold, every single person should respect the dignity and the sanctity of human life. And I think it is vitally important that we hold those people accountable. Uh, hey, Craig, I have to tell you, we are going to have, I know for a fact, uh, a lot of pro-life Republicans tomorrow, but we'll have some pro-life Democrats with us marching as well. Uh, this really should not be, when you think about it, this should not be a partisan issue. It should not be a red versus blue issue. Uh, the right of every unborn child to be born and to live a life free of violence, both inside the womb and outside the womb, uh, that should be a universal right. That should be something that every Republican, every Democrat should be marching with us. So our hope and prayer is that uh, regardless of how the recall turns out in a few weeks, uh, we hope that this is going to begin to turn the page on the shameful history that California has had regarding the abortion issue. Absolutely. And let me echo for the benefit of listeners to, to make this abundantly clear. While this is taking place in the state capitol, this is not a political march. This is not a political event of any sort or nature whatsoever. It is simply making a statement that happens to be occurring in the same place where the, the, the laws of California are made by people that have been appointed to by the people of California to go there and supposedly represent us. But in reality, this is a statement, as Jonathan Keller points out so aptly, uh, really that all people, no matter what your persuasion politically or otherwise is, uh, defending those who have no ability to defend themselves, standing up for the dignity and value of human life, uh, that's not politics. That's just that's just human rights. That's just doing the right thing. That is believing in the rule of law, uh, natural law, that is giving nod to the Judeo-Christian ethic upon which this nation was founded uh, 300 practically years ago. And so this is an opportunity to to show a, a sense of um, uh, united belief in the value and sanctity of human life. And if there's a statement along the way that helps to uh, impress upon those who pass the laws in our state as to how they might consider reconsider their positions on this subject matter, well, that's a wonderful side benefit. Again, it takes place tomorrow, Wednesday, August the 25th, in Sacramento. And as Jonathan mentions, it'll begin with a rally at the state capitol at 11 a.m. prompt, followed by the march at 12 noon. And uh, folks want to get more information, you can go online to camarchforlife.org, that's ca abbreviation for California, C-A, March, F-O-R, Life, dot O-R-G. And we're looking forward to a wonderful report of some exciting things happening tomorrow. Thank you so much, Jonathan Keller, for joining us with that update. All right, let's get an update traffic-wise. We'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. We are back to the conversation 524 here on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. Um, the, the issue related to COVID is a complex one. We all know that. We know that there are complexities both in terms of questions related to where did this thing come from? Is anyone directly responsible, meaning releasing it intentionally or even accidentally in a what should have been controlled environment, and will they ultimately ever have to give answer if, in fact, 
that was the case of the origins of COVID. And we know certainly that there seems to be very strong opinions on both sides in terms of who, where, how, danger levels, etc. And you can probably find as many opinions out there as you can noses on people, or noses on faces, as they say. Um, And yet, we know that this continues to claim lives. And we're seeing upwards of 650,000 Americans that were with us a year and a half ago that no longer are, who died from COVID or complications related to COVID-19. And now, of course, the attempt is to try to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And in some cases, doctors and hospitals calling for even tougher restrictions to try and spread or, or, or curb the spread of covid Um, For example, such is the case in San Diego, California, as we hear from Eddie McGovern. The San Diego County Medical Society and the Hospital Association of San Diego and Imperial Counties is urging Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten to reinstate the indoor mask mandate. The joint statement from the two groups also calls on the county to require bars, restaurants, gyms, and entertainment venues to check for proof of vaccinations. The healthcare professionals say the restrictions are already in practice in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and San Diego should follow suit. I'm Eddie McCoven, NBC News Radio. Of course, it does raise certain constitutional questions, doesn't it, in terms of um, compelling someone to take the shot and then compelling them to demonstrate that they, in fact, have taken the shot. And if you've taken the shot yourself, you know that that little card that they distribute is (laughs) probably the easiest thing to um, counterfeit on planet Earth and um, really tells us no story whatsoever. And yet there is a growing concern that an attempt to try and stop the spread, they want a mandate. But constitutionally, is that really possible? And then going beyond levels of private businesses insisting on that and kind of a no, no shirt, no shoes, no vaccine, no service approach, we're also seeing educational systems jumping into the fray. For example, here at California, Sacramento area, colleges are paying students to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Jody Guerrero has more. Los Rios Community College students are paid $100 per COVID-19 vaccine dose. The college district's Gabe Ross says all on-campus students and staff must be vaccinated by October 1st. We want everyone to get vaccinated whether they're coming on campus or not, but the requirement is only for those who come onto our physical campuses. Proof of the first shot is due September 1st and the second is due November 1st. The money is then automatically deposited in the student's school account or sent by mail. Those who choose not to get vaccinated will have to take online courses. Those vaccinated before the incentive program are still eligible. Jody Guerrero, NBC News Radio. <laughs> that does strike me as a little odd. So we're essentially bribing people? And if you're going to say, we'll pay you 100 bucks if you go and get the vaccine, does that mean that everybody that's been vaccinated so far should have a check waiting for them? I mean, is it really necessary? And at certain levels, if we look at the broader question of doing for the benefit of community health, the sake and and welfare of all of us, isn't that motivation enough? There's a new report out that's indicating that those who have not been vaccinated against the coronavirus are 29 times more likely to be hospitalized if they, in fact, become infected. 
That's according to a study published by the CDC. It also found those who haven't gotten the shots are about five times more likely to get coronavirus than those who are fully vaccinated. The agency says the study looked at data out of Los Angeles County from May 1st through July 25th. I'm Lisa Taylor. You know, certainly we as Americans, we are fiercely independent. We value our right to choose. We value our right to uh, to be able to exercise our own will. Um, and I, I certainly support that. I support that from a constitutional standpoint. And, and by the way, from a theological standpoint, that's also very valid, too. Uh, very God himself fully supports our ability to exercise our own will. There's one caveat, though. That caveat is that there are consequences to our choices. And if we make the wrong choice, we will have to pay the consequences. Scripture certainly guides us in terms of the way we should live out our lives. But God does not infringe upon our will that if we choose to ignore the guidelines that God has given us, we are free to do that. Understanding, though, that when it comes to wrong choices, if we do not choose wisely, we will suffer the consequences. So the question is, yes, as we value our freedom, we need to be in a society that does not attempt to impose governmental imposition upon us. And yet as we make the choices that we make, do we make those choices fully informed with the awareness that we need to be prepared to deal with the potential consequences for choosing wrong? And what of our responsibility, as Scripture talks about, to be our brother's keeper? Important questions I think we need to ponder. 5.30 from KFAX, an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome this back to... This is sponsored oh. by Visit California. Yeah, we don't want to do that. This is not sponsored by that at all. <laughs> we appreciate you visiting California. <laughs> all right, welcome back to the conversation. 534, Craig Roberts and my apparent sidekick in the automation system there. I want to turn a corner now. We touched on the topic of the whole issue of COVID and vaccines. There's a broader constitutional issue, as I suggested, that I think really bears um, some investigation, because while much of what we're hearing, San Diego, Sacramento, elsewhere across the country, of both municipalities and uh, educational institutions mandating virus vaccinations, the question that's not been answered, uh, setting aside for a moment the entire discussion of effect, effectiveness and community health and herd immunity, et cetera, et cetera, just speaking purely to the constitutional question of can our government impose its will on such an intimate health question as requiring, compelling someone to take some vaccine up to and including the possible penalties of losing your employment. And boy, doesn't that raise some hotbed constitutional questions. And guess what? we got a guy to help answer them. 
Joining me now is Bob Zadek. Bob is the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the country, The Bob Zadek Show, broadcast here in the greater Northern California region every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. And you can get more information about Bob, his work online at bobzadek.com. And I'll repeat that address for you a little bit later on in the conversation. Robert, as always, great to have you on the program. Your show this weekend is going to be very compelling tune-in radio, uh, sort of must-tune-in, must-listen radio, because you're going to have an opportunity to talk with Professor Todd Zawicki, who is a George Mason University law professor um, who has grappled with this very issue, the university wishing to compel him to receive the vaccination, giving no credence whatsoever to the fact that he has heretofore been exposed to COVID and has natural antibodies. And I would suppose maybe one of the first lessons here is that if you want to go to battle on a constitutionally charged issue, uh, don't pick that battle with a law professor. But the university indeed has. And tell us exactly a little bit more of the background on this for the benefit of listeners. Well, just to fine-tune, you are teeing up the topic. Oh, and by the way, thank you very much um, for having me again on the show. Uh, You're a great host, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, Now, to the matter of the day, to fine-tune the issue that you have teed up so nicely, it's not quite that the university is... And these words matter, Craig. Uh, It's not quite the university is saying, we compel you to have a vaccination. That's not uh, the Constitution doesn't empower the government in general to require, to compel anybody to have a vaccination. Um, and there have been ugly instances in our history that we may get into when the government compelled medical procedures. It's not pretty. But in this case, the government cannot compel, per se, the vaccination. That is, have a vaccination or you go to jail, or have a vaccination or we will strap you to a gurney and give you one anyway. We're not there. But the school is George Mason's University's School of Law, the Scalia School of Law, named after uh, deceased Justice uh, Anton Scalia, and uh, Todd Zwicky, who, by the way, was a guest on my show several years ago, Todd Zwicky uh, took, uh, went to teach a class at Scalia, and the University School of Law, which is a state university, which means it's the government acting, the government acting through its school, said to uh, Professor Zwicky and all other professors, you will not be allowed to teach a live class um, unless you either wear a mask or are vaccinated. Well, Professor Zwicky said, if I wear a mask, my teaching is substantially diminished because of the, the hearing of what I'm saying and the subtlety and the like, and we will accept that as a given. His teaching is less effective. And he said, in any event, I had COVID, and therefore I have the immunity that comes from having the virus. And um, 
recovering. So I have more or less the same immunity that I would have had from a vaccination anyway. And after all school of law, you shouldn't care whether I've been vaccinated. You should care whether I could transmit the disease to others. And I cannot transmit the disease to others, I am told by the doctors, uh, any more than I could have if I were vaccinated. So therefore, I insist upon preserving my bodily autonomy, the autonomy over what happens to my body. And therefore, um, I will not be vaccinated, and I want to be able to teach my class. Todd was, uh, uh, Professor Zawicki was represented by a public interest law firm newly formed by another law professor at Scalia, whose name is Philip Hamburger, who was a frequent guest on my show. That's both a, that's a coincidence. And the case was fought, and in the early stages it was settled. Uh, professor Zawicki is allowed to teach his class without a mask and without a vaccination under certain very modest conditions. So the case never went to trial on the merits. Um, and Zwicky, who was never compelled, as I said, to be vaccinated, he was required to be vaccinated as a condition of him doing something else, which is teach his class without a mask. So that was the issue. It was quite an interesting case. Uh, one can uh, I've spoken to other professors at Scalia School of Law, many of whom are more or less libertarians, and they are sometimes the strong supporters of Professor Zawicki's position, some less enthusiastic who believe that his constitutional claims may not have merit, but who knows? This is an ever-changing legal landscape, especially with matters relating to COVID. So nobody really knows for sure. There has only been one Supreme Court case, a case called Jacobson, a Massachusetts case, which some scholars believe stands for the principle that the state can compel vaccination. Others disagree. So suffice to say, at the constitutional level, there is not a compelling constitutional principle that answers the question. I tend to doubt it. I tend to doubt that our country will ever get to the point that the state can compel you, per se, to be vaccinated. Now, the state comes pretty gosh darn close, as you correctly said in your introduction, when you point out that municipalities, governments, states and cities do have considerable power over venues that need a license. Um, those of you who have ever heard me on my show or heard me speak know that license is a word that I tend to abhor. It's a hateful word. I hate the concept of seeking permission from a government to do an otherwise lawful act like opening up a store, the fact that you need permission, or becoming a barber, the fact that you need permission to cut somebody's hair is to me 
profoundly abhorrent. I hate the word license in general, but states do license lots of activities, health department licenses, sales tax licenses, and the like. And the states, through their licensing power, through their general what's called police power, but it's not police, that is people with guns. Police power means looking after uh, health, welfare, and safety in the broader sense. Under the state's broad police power, the state licenses restaurants. That's established policy. And the state can say, as a condition of keeping your license, you better not permit people into your restaurant unless they are vaccinated. So the states have lots of indirect power to compel uh, restaurants, to use that as an example, to operate in a certain way. And uh, again, the cities and states are not compelling vaccination, but they are indirectly. You can't board a plane unless you're vaccinated. That's not the law, but that might be the law someday. You can't go to a concert, etc., unless you have proof of vaccination. The state has the power to do that. Whether or not they're going to exercise that power and to what degree is up for grabs. But that's the broad picture. We can drill down if you wish. And that's I know certainly, Bob... Picture. I know certainly, Bob, and, and this may come down to a matter of semantics, that that, that it, at least in terms of the spirit, you know, it's the old letter versus the spirit argument, at least in terms of the spirit of what is being said here by George Mason University when they say, and, I, and I'm quoting now, unpaid leave or possible loss of employment would be the potential repercussions for faculty or students that do not comply with the university's vaccine mandate, you know, does does that rise to the level of, 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 of outright compulsion? Well, I'm not sure. But it sure feels like it if you say to someone, you may have risk of losing your livelihood if you don't go and, and, and play by our rules and, and go and receive the vaccination. That feels like it's at least in the compulsory uh, arena. You feel uh, let's let's start easy. A restaurant has a sign that says no bathing attire in the restaurant. Now that's kind of harmless. No one really cares. But I don't think anybody would question a restaurant saying uh, to the public, "We have we can serve who we wish. We will not serve you if you are wearing." flip-flops or bathing attire. So in general, restaurants have the power, the right, to say who they will serve, subject to the fact that under other laws they can't discriminate for various reasons, race, religion, uh, ethnicity, things of that nature. That's under federal statutes, the Civil Rights Act, and the like, because they are public accommodations. Uh, So in general, we are accustomed to having people from whom we buy things make rules under which they will serve us or not. Um, I don't think anybody would feel forgetting about the fact that it is uh, not a good idea, but if a, if a state were to pass a law and say, um, uh, as a condition of the license, you cannot allow people in the in the restaurant who are carrying a unconcealed handgun now i don't know that gets into second amendment rights but we can imagine the state 
uh, dictating in broad sense uh, compelling or allowing restaurants to discriminate one way or another. So this is merely an extreme example of that. It's, it's, and remember, the, the theory is that other attendees, other customers in the restaurant, to use restaurants as an example, we could use universities, that they expect their government to protect them from communicable disease. And you and I, when we go to a restaurant or attend classes, we have no control over who's sitting next to us. So we depend upon others to look after us and to protect us. We can't ask the person sitting next to us if they have proof that they've been vaccinated or else we're going to change our seat. So to some degree, it's the kind of protection only the state, the government, can offer. And to some degree, it's an issue of personal freedom crashing into the co collective uh, need of government to protect the health and welfare of its citizens. It is, if you like studying the law and these kind of conversations, it is very delicious because it invites the conversation that we are having where reasonable minds can differ, as they say, and the law is unclear, at least on the constitutional level. And, and certainly, Bob, to the degree at which, you know, there are certain statutes in place in a non-discriminatory fashion, race, creed, color, things of that sort, but yet leave open to uh, individual interpretation, at least in the private enterprise arena, things like, as you refer to, we've all seen the sign, no shirt, no shoes, no service. So it leaves to that individual business owner the decision as to whether or not they wish to engage in commerce with an individual that does not comply with that particular business's policy of you have to have a certain uh, minimum uh, decorum when it comes to attire or they don't wish to do business with you. But this is a public university, and therefore as an extension, in a sense, of the government to then in common compel, and again, I, I'm, I'm using that word intentionally because it feels like it's compulsory, when you add on the, the, um, uh, the caveat that if you do not by by the rules, in other words, receive the vaccination and show proof of same that you may you may face either unpaid leave or possible loss of employment. When that's done at the behest of a government organization, does that not tar start to kind of push us into different territory here? Of course it does, and that's what makes your topic, your choice of topics, such an interesting one because it starts to call into question beliefs that we've sort of taken for granted. And all of a sudden, we have to, in a different context, examine the beliefs. Craig, there was a, you and I are old. There was a time we remember that smoking was always permitted in restaurants and in airplanes. And now federal law requires that airlines do not permit smoking in an airplane. Now, one can easily say, if you are have a serious smoking habit, so you are really made to feel uncomfortable and maybe even have more serious symptoms if you don't smoke for five hours. But yet, you your need to smoke is subordinated 
to the more significant need of the rest of the public to be spared the unpleasantness or the, or the health risks of secondhand smoke. So a decision is made. The rights of the, you weigh the, the, the detriment to the few against the benefits of the many, and you make a decision, and then it is ultimately tested possibly under a constitutional standard. But the issue itself, every law that protects people takes away the rights from somebody else. If you're protected, somebody has theoretically the right to punch you in the nose. They have the right, perhaps, but no, that right is taken away in order to protect your right to have a nose that has full integrity. It's a balancing, and you have the right to yell fire, but not in a crowded theater. And so the right to yell fire, which you have in the streets, you don't have, theoretically, in a crowded theater because of the danger of stampede and things of that nature. So the balancing is what government is all about. They balance the rights of the many against the, the detriment to the few, and they make a decision, which is greater and they, if they are rational, that's a big assumption, of course, but if government is rational in applying that rule, they presumably will reach the right decision more than the wrong decision. And this is nothing other than that. Yes, Professor Zawicki has a right to bodily integrity, and that has to be weighed. And in this case, the case was settled, so we don't have some federal appellate court ruling or even a Supreme Court ruling. Uh, so we have a chance to talk about and have an opinion, and everybody's opinion counts for the same because there is no finite ruling on the subject. Do you see it heading in that direction, though? I mean, as, as government is trying to weigh the public health benefits against individual rights and freedoms, and of course there are some uh, constitutional questions here as well uh, in terms of, you know, just how far can government go in forcing me to make a decision, particularly when it comes to the integrity of my own person, in other words, receiving a shot. Um, do you anticipate, Bob, as we are sort of early into all of this, that uh, at, at some point soon there will eventually be a court battle and, 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 and maybe even as high as to the U.S. Supreme Court going to the very heart of this question? Well, there was in the past, and I'm sure it would go, it's a case called Jacobson, as I said, it's a 1906, I think, case. Um, there are occasional cases dealing with this very delicate area of, of the state intruding into bodily integrity. It's Craig, you have a an audience with strong religious leanings. Talk about issues that have religious implications. Just imagine this spills over, uh, and we're not going to talk about it on the show, but just it's the same broad class. It's like abortion. It's like assisted suicide. There are so many really hard social issues where the right to do what you wish with your body or not to do what you wish with your body crashes into government compulsion. It is about as tough as an, as an issue can get. There was a case um, in the 1920s decided by uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, in general, a distinguished and interesting Supreme Court 
Justice, a very interesting fellow, a scholar, and in a decision that everybody learns in law school, it dealt with a woman who um, had uh, was mentally impaired, seriously impaired. Um, and the state, it was in the South, and the state had a statute that required, in order to prevent, and it was an inherited characteristic, in order to prevent her from having children born with the same defect, the state had a statute that compelled that she be sterilized. Can you imagine? This was a state statute done, this was during the period of, of eugenics, the ugly period in American history. But in any event, it went up to the Supreme Court as to whether the state could compel forced sterilization. It's the same kind of an issue. It's bodily integrity. And the, and the Supreme Court, Justice Holmes, writing the opinion, said in a decision, I cringe even to quote, but I will quote, when he wrote the majority opinion in favor of sterilization, he said, because she was, a, her parents and grandparents had the same defect, he said, if you can believe this, Craig, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Can you- wow. <laughs> There's a kind remark. Yeah, and, you know, we can dovetail from that into not only the history of forced sterilization, but um, the Tuskegee experiments come to mind as well. This raises so many critical issues, and I and I apologize to both our guest tonight, Bob Zadek, and to listeners that we have barely scratched the surface. Uh, sometimes a half hour, 40 minutes just does not do it justice. We need to open up and do a lot more time, and we'll do that next time. But uh, meanwhile, as you hear how critically compelling this topic is, Bob's going to dive in depth this coming Sunday at 8 o'clock on his program, The Bob Zadek Show, we invite you to make an effort to tune in. You can catch the broadcast again live at 8.60 a.m. The Answer, Sunday morning at 8 a.m. And um, why not check beforehand Bob's website? Got lots of great resources up there, podcast information about past guests as well as Bob's books, all available at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. Dot com And our thanks to Bob Zadek for being with us tonight. All right, plumb out of time. Let's get you to a look at traffic. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.